where lust for a whole life and nothing but less makes people jump out of a comfortable pond into an unknown ocean. Welcome to that journey between the East and the West. Who says Rolling Stones don't gather moss? Hello everyone, I am Meenu Gupta, your host for the day, and I'm delighted to have you join me every week as amazing people share their incredible and inspiring life stories of straddling continents. Thank you. A Jordanian-British actress, singer, TV presenter, certified life coach, and an ambassador of Children of War Foundation. She's a multi-ethnic and bilingual individual born to a British mother and Arab father. Her background is so diverse that I had to invite her and to know her more directly and not just from the media. So thank you very much, uh, Rania, and uh, a very warm welcome. Thank you, Minu. I'm really glad and happy to be here and talk to you today. So I would like to begin with, occasionally I ask this question, who are you beyond your labels, the ones I just mentioned, and the relationship labels of mother, wife, friend, daughter? Who are you? I'm someone who's very curious. I've always been curious to try everything, be everything, experience everything from a very young age. And I think that's what gives me so much variety in life of the things that I do that maybe don't seem to relate to each other. But for me, it gives me a bigger experience of what this lifetime is, what I can manage to do in this one lifetime. And I think choosing to be an actress and then a life coach definitely gave me that opportunity to feel like what it might be to be a baddie, you know, a nasty person, a nice person, a queen, um, a police officer. You know, I can jump into those roles. I can create my own roles. And being a coach, I listen to other people's experiences. And through them, I can I can live those experiences. Um, I started writing as well because that gave me a whole other way into things. And so my curiosity is curiosity in religions, curiosity in uh, different types of things, whether it's martial arts or whether it's unusual workshops or, or groups that I can join. Like I dabble in everything, which helps me also creates unusual comedy at times where people think, well, how does she know about that? You know, it's because I try these things out. So I think it all comes down mostly to I'm a very curious person and someone who enjoys humor. I, I live my life with humor. So no matter how bad it gets, I'll find a way to get through it with laughter and see the joke side of it. I'm someone who likes to keep developing myself. I'm very much into self-development. So even as a teenager, it started with horoscopes, it moved on to Enneagrams, it moved on to, you know, Maya Briggs, uh, whatever I can get my hands on. I'm always analyzing. So I would say, yes, mostly curious and humorous. So you essentially like to expand your envelope. You're constantly expanding your envelope. Tell me a little about your journey. I believe that you were born in Britain and then you grew up in Jordan and now you live in Britain again. So do share how the geographical shift happened. And there's a little bit in between as well, but that's always the simplified version. So my mother's originally half Syrian, half Irish. 
but she grew up in Britain. So it's so much easier to just say she's English or British. And my father is half Kurdish, half Sarkasian. And Sarkasian are people from the Russian Alps. So he grew up in Jordan and was born in Jordan. So it's easier to say he's Jordanian and Arab. But actually, both of them have, you know, different heritage, different parts uh, to, you know, to them. So it's easier to say that my father's Arab and my mother is British, but, you know, they are a real mixture themselves. And I was born in England because my mother has her family in England, but I went straight back to Jordan, which was where she had met my father and that's where they lived. She was an airline hostess on the same airlines that he was a pilot. So that's how she ended up living in Jordan. And then my father transferred to Iran as a pilot. So I grew up in Iran the first few years of my life. So I spoke English and Persian at the beginning. And then the revolution happened and I came back to Jordan. So my whole schooling was in Jordan. And then college, I went back to England and I studied performing arts. And I stayed on there for a few years, about seven years, before I met my husband in Jordan. So I got married, came back to Jordan. And then after about 20 years, I decided I wanted to come back to England and we separated. And I've been in England for the last 10 years. And in between, I've worked and lived in uh, Egypt and Lebanon. How did Britain, Jordan, Lebanon, Iran and Egypt shape Rani as a person? What about the influence of a mixed lineage which comprises even more countries, Ireland, Syria and a bit of Russian roots? Let's find out from the journey of her life between the East and the West. That's interesting. So, so you've also expanded the living sphere. And what was that like, living in different places? Lebanon for me was thrilling. I think it has been my favorite country so far to live in, even though it's so problematic. They are always going through struggles. At the moment, you know, there's a lack of petrol. The government is not helping them. So the currency is very low. There's been the explosion there a few years ago. I mean, it's really tough. However, people there and the way they do things in such a creative manner and the shows that they do in the media and TV, me working with them, I actually presented um, the Arab version of Pop Idol, X Factor. I just loved it there. So for me, Lebanon sort of feels like France, Paris, slash Middle Eastern culture. Like it's a good mix and it's by the sea. So that was a wonderful experience. And Egypt, I found quite difficult. Egypt was a whole different sort of lifestyle. Everyone seemed to work and live by night and not by day, especially in the field that I work in. And I was filming there and I was pregnant at the time and it was just all quite difficult for me in Egypt. Weather-wise, lifestyle-wise, you know, I found that quite challenging. So I didn't feel that I could stay on there and have a film career there, even though there is the Hollywood of the Arab world if you are to be an actress. So the different experiences in different places taught me quite a bit. Egypt is a place where you filmed that uh, movie The Seventh Sense. Yes. Seventh Sense. It's a comedy. It's like a ripoff. Very interesting. So what was it like growing up with parents of different ethnicities? 
It was nice because I had two languages and somehow it, it gives you that extra kind of edge, really, that, you know, when you're when you're in England, you can understand people who are speaking Arabic who don't guess that you could understand them, for instance, or you can surprise people that you speak another language or Arabic when they don't expect it, especially as I don't look particularly Arab, I would say, in what people expect an Arab to look like. And I sound very British. I can get away with that. And that's kind of fun. And it just, you know, gives me something different that people are interested in, especially with work. I found that quite helpful in England. When I was a drama student, I was able to do jingles and adverts and things like that in Arabic because they could use that skill. Whereas the rest of my friends who were, who were not, you know, were working at Pizza Hut and doing um, part-time jobs that took up a lot of hours. So I felt very privileged that I had that. And then in Jordan, it also gives me another angle that I'm half British and I can sound so British. I do a lot of voiceovers and commercials as well for there because they need me. They need people who sound, you know, authentically British or American. And then a lot of the roles that I play in theater or TV, you know, they'll ask me to be the foreigner. But it's kind of funny that in Jordan, they want me to be the foreigner as in Western but here, back in England, the roles that I get all the time, they're asking me to be Arab. So here they think I'm Arab enough to be Arab, <laughs> but can't be British. And there they think I'm not Arab enough. So this has led me a lot of the time to write my own stuff, produce my own stuff, because I know as an actress, I can do both. And I don't need to wait for someone to see, think, no, you can only be in this box in this category, because I can transform my looks, I can transform my accent. I know a lot about what makes British so British, what makes Arab so Arab, that part of my comedy is playing on that anyway, half the time. But here they box me into the Arab and they ask me to do the accent. And a lot of the time I have to wear hijab, which is not what every Arab sounds like or looks like, but that's what they imagine. And then in the Middle East, they're asking me to be the westernized foreigner with an American accent or a British accent and dress a certain way to play those roles. I guess that's where your appeal lies, being able to straddle both sides. And you're exactly, when I was looking at the location of Jordan, it's exactly in the middle of Europe, Asia, and Africa, like right there on the... So you are actually not only geographically, but in every which way, straddling different sides. So I guess that's the appeal. When you said you were in Britain, they expect you to look more Arab. So when you say expect, what is their expectation? What what should an Arab be like according to them? Yes. Long dark hair, which a lot of the time mine is short and it has changed colors from blonde to blue to all sorts, which in the Middle East, they like that I'm unique or that I have this kind of funky style that changes a lot. So it kind of ruins it for me as a pop singer or doing the other <laughs> stuff. But I have to look Arab for the acting roles in England. So, you know, I'm not happy with longer, darker hair. It's not it's not what I like, but I have that because every time I turn up with short hair, you know, I'm not getting the roles. And they're giving actresses who aren't Arab, but who look Arab because they got long, dark hair and dark eyes, the roles, and then ask them to do the accent in the end. So that's one thing. Another thing is the accent. You know, they're expecting me to sound more like this. So a lot of the time I talk like this for them, uh, where I roll my R's and things like that. 
I usually wear dangly earrings and a darker eyeliner to give me a more like exotic look. <laughs> As you, you're expecting exotic with long, dark hair, dark gold eyeliners and so on. And like you said, rolled R's. Okay. Also exotic. Interesting. That's it's always interesting because uh, it's all about the image people have in their minds based on whatever they've read or seen or heard from the media, which is never a complete story. Yes. Yeah, so they're just implementing that belief again and again by making you look like that, even if you're not like that. I am like, I am authentically Arab. You know, I've lived there. I'm, I, I speak the language. I was brought up there. Uh, my father is. But I look like this. Maybe give that image so people don't keep expecting you to look the same. So. Yeah, that is a difficult part that casting agents still don't seem to think that way. But more and more, I'm beginning to see now a difference in the parts that are coming up. They are expanding finally. So hopefully in my lifetime, I maybe will get to play more someone myself rather than playing what they think an Arab should look or sound like. So which nationality do you associate with more closely and why? Like British or... Arab. I don't feel fully one thing at all. I do feel like I'm a mixture and a blend. So I wouldn't say I feel more Jordanian or more British. I do kind of feel like I'm just a part of this planet, which I prefer to be that way. And I wish actually all humans just felt like we are humans from Earth rather than being very clingy to I am this and you are not you know? So you're a global citizen. Yes, global citizen. Yeah, it doesn't matter in the end. I do feel global citizen. Yeah. So where is home for you? But let's say, is it a place or your home everywhere? I think home is where you have the most friendships and family and feel you understand the culture. I think understanding the culture through the humor and the TV programs and the music and the memories makes you feel at home somewhere. What makes you feel an outsider is when you don't know those things. So people are joking about, oh yeah, in the 80s when blah, 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 and you don't know it, makes you feel like an outsider. If they tell a joke or they use a certain word that you don't know, then you also feel like you're an outsider. Those are the things that make you feel like home, I think. So a place that you've been maybe the longest whether you're from there or not, or your family are from there or not. I think if you've been there a long time and you know the culture well and you know the jokes and you know those sort of inside things, it makes you feel like you're part of it. So where would that be for you, Britain? So for me, uh, because I've done equal amounts of uh, Jordan and England, I would say both. Hey, you're a happy combination, I must say. Best of the East and the West, or? Yes. But I do get, in Jordan at least, because I think I'm well known in Jordan as a presenter, singer, actress, more than I am in England. They see me as Jordanian. Some know that I'm half British, but generally they think, yes, she's from Jordan, she's Jordanian. So I'm very penalized when they hear me speaking English on my podcast or on my Instagram. They'll be like, why do you have to speak English when you're an Arab? So then I have to explain myself all the time. So it brings its own set of challenges while 
it could be the best of the east and the west and right in the middle in the middle of the east and the west yeah and sometimes in england people can also feel like oh she's a little bit exotic or has a different background whereas we've lived here all our lives or and just them feeling that difference can possibly make them feel like yeah we don't really know how to how to work with that you know so then you feel like oh, okay i'm not english enough for them even though i sound it i get it i still the fact that i've had a background that's very different now uh, probably that wouldn't happen if it was another individual who's british who's lived abroad a lot or worked abroad a lot then there would be something in common but someone who hasn't will feel like ah oh, that's a bit different from us i find that that causes a distance sometimes it's funny how people want the same a lot you know even with even with friendships you'll find it a lot with women i find like if you're both single and you're both into this sport or into this look, then you'll hang out together. And then if one of you gets married and the other one isn't, that sort of changes. You don't have as much in common. Or if one of you has children and the other one doesn't, it's kind of like everyone wants to hang out with what's the same as them rather than different. And I think culture, language, all of that comes into it, unless you are someone who's quite adventurous and likes that difference. You want to expand and you want to mix with people who are unlike yourself. But most people seem to be drawn to whatever is similar to them. I believe scientifically it is proven uh, that uh, humans have that tendency. They feel safer and they're more able to relate so diversity is threatening, as, as one of my guests mentioned. Diversity is sort of threatening because they're not able to probably mentally associate. It's the adventurous uh, who are able to look at it comfortably. So inclusion, of course, would come at a second stage. But uh, it's the adventurous who are able to take, it, take a variety on their plate and not know what is there. But yes, hey, I'm curious. Let's see what is on my plate today. Yes. So, you know, that need for predictability and knowing is a safe thing. And you'll see it a lot in teenagers. All teenagers go through that phase where they want to wear the same things, sound the same way, eat the same things, look the same, because they don't want to stand out and they don't want to be different because they will be picked on and noticed if they're different. Yes. Oh, you have to, uh, children as well. I believe you have two children, right? Yes. A son and a daughter, 16 and 18. Oh, so they are right there. You're right Teens. there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there would be what nowadays people love giving labels now. So there's a label which is called third culture kids. So they would fit into that. I suppose so. Yeah. They are very confused about what they are because I'm quarters of things. And their father is also half Danish, a quarter Turkish, and a quarter Jordanian. So they don't have even a quarter of anything or a third of anything. It's like de <laughs> decimals, decimals of about eight or nine different, you know, ethnicities or cultures. So they don't really know how to identify either, whether they're Danish, Jordanian, British, Turkish. They, so they simplify as well with British and Jordanian because those are the passports that they have. But now they've got Danish passports, so they're a bit confused, but they don't speak the language. They haven't lived there, but they're about to. Now my 18-year-old is about to explore Denmark and try and learn the language and see how he feels about Denmark because it has a lot to offer. It would be a shame for him not to. 
that must be very confusing for them at this age, particularly as teenagers. Is that, um, I haven't reached there yet with my son. He's a bit younger, uh, nine. So I guess I will reach there. He will also be a third culture kid. But um, in your case, as, as with teenage children, with third culture kids, it's very interesting. They want to identify to a particular ethnicity, or I guess they must be exploring. I think they go with wherever they're living. So my daughter's been living in England for the last 10 years. So really her growing up into a teen has been here. So she's trying to be as English as possible, as British as possible, to make her not stand out that she's got this little bit extra other side where she just goes for summer holidays, you know, is to Jordan. Whereas my son had a little bit longer there because he's older than her. And he went back there to finish his schooling for the last four years. So he's clinging more to the Jordanian. But now that he's going to Denmark, he's kind of doing the whole, I'm Danish. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I have a cousin who is half German, who's grown up in Germany. So he has the same dilemma as well. Like he doesn't feel Arab. He doesn't speak Arabic, but he is Arab. So is he more German than he is Arab? He also lived in England for a little while. So he's a playwright and he he wrote a play about his life and he explains this, you know, complicated system of who is he. And he interviewed a lot of members of the family and asked them, you know, where do you feel you're from? And honestly, every single person had a different answer. We're all pretty much from the same place because we're a family, but everyone felt they were from somewhere different according to where they lived or how they felt. Um, My son was asked and he was pretty confused. And he said, Denmark, even though he's not been been there. He doesn't speak the language. He wasn't born there, but he chose Denmark. That's interesting, actually. So it seems people of uh, different ethnicities have this lifelong thirst of figuring out their identity in a particular way. And I've just um, gifted them the uh, ancestry the ancestry analysis that you can do if you send in DNA and they figure out how much percentage you are. Yes. So now they're super confused because things have come up that they didn't know they had either, you know? Oh my God. Yeah. And the percentages of them is what shocked them, that they're more Turkish than they are Irish uh, or they're more Danish than they were Arab, you know, things that they weren't expecting. So now they're kind of like, well, we feel mostly this, but it turns out we're 60% that, you know, actually they don't have a 60% for anything. They're literally like 12%, 5%, 3%. It's such a mixture. They have about 20 different things in there. Oh my God. Okay, so that's a headache. I'd rather just be a simple human being on this planet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think it really doesn't matter. Look at it as I've learned to speak these languages. These are the languages I can communicate in. But it doesn't really matter. It doesn't say who you are and where you're from. And is there a difference in the work cultures in the media industry? Because that's largely what you have straddled in the East and the West, or let's say in the Mid-East and the, in the West or the Midwest. So, so in television, film and theatre, is there, in terms of work culture, how is that? I think everywhere it's who you know and luck as well that gets you places. And mingling and socialising 
people who've trusted that they've worked with you before give you work again. So it's quite hard to get into the industry when you're new and you don't have those connections or you you don't know somebody who knows somebody. Tends to be in, in media everywhere, I find. But here, at least there's more opportunities in England for casting and auditions. You know, it's open to all actors who will suit that role. So you've got a chance, but you're up against a lot of people. In the Arab world, there's less of us. So you can show easier and get to know other people in the industry much, much quicker. I think there's a lot more clarity and rules when you're working in the West. You know when you're getting paid, how you're getting paid, what you're promised happens. In the Arab world, it doesn't. So most of the time you're spending your energy wasted on trying to follow up who should have paid you and hasn't, where the contracts got to. You've already started the job and you still haven't seen the contract. You know, all these things are are very difficult and very challenging. In the Arab world, I've pretty much been a one-woman show for nearly everything where I've taken things into my own hands. I've had to do everything, which has taught me a lot, but it's frustrating. Here, it's more relaxing that I have an agent, I have a manager, I'm I'm called for the audition. I They have dealt with exactly what the procedures will be, what the rules are, how much I'll be paid, when I will, and they will follow up with that. And I can concentrate on just my work, what I have to do as an artist. But in Jordan or Lebanon or Egypt, you know, I've ended up being the producer, the writer, the thinker, the editor, the everything, because things go wrong and people let you down and things like that. So I've learned a lot through it, skills that I wouldn't have learned if I wasn't thrown in the deep end. So that's the that's the good side to it. But it's very tiring that you're not actually concentrating on your job as an artist when you're on camera because you're thinking of the million problems that are happening behind camera that have to be dealt with. So its processes are more well-defined and uh, you can be who you wish to be in that role or whatever, you can focus more. Yes, you can trust that everyone's doing their job. That's nice, actually. That's nice. That's a good mental base to have when not knowing. But almost, I think, some years back, you collaborated in the production of a very successful comedy TV show. I think that was in Jordan on on sexual and reproductive health uh, topics pertaining to youth. So I had this question in the in the era of global knowledge and, and um, information abundance that we all live in. Do you think that the youth in the Middle East are less aware or more misinformed than their counterparts in the West? Or according to you, it's the same everywhere? Yes, I think they are more misinformed. And I think it's not because they can't Google it or search for it. But you know how we trust if everyone in our culture is saying something. Oh, the religion is saying something and our parents are saying something. We can become brainwashed or blinded to not believe hearing the opposite from anywhere else. It's very easy to you to then grow up believing, oh yes, that's that's not okay, you know? Or periods, for instance. Periods seem to be still a taboo topic to talk about. But even even in the West, I mean, if you watch the commercials, they will always use blue ink as the um, symbol of of bleeding on any sanitary towel or whatever in a commercial, for instance as if red is something that, you know, we don't want to show the reality of what a period is. Why are we hiding away from it? 
what is so shocking or bad that we have to hide about periods? So even in a Western culture, there's a bit of that going on. So imagine in Middle Eastern culture, you know, the girls told all the time, shh, don't say you have your period or period is dirty or the religion is saying, you know, you shouldn't touch the Quran when you're on your period and you shouldn't do this when you're on your period. So they're seeing the period as something very embarrassing and very dirty and something they don't want to mention. So there's there's young girls growing up following what their mothers are doing that, let's say in Ramadan, fasting is to be done, except if you're on your period, then you can continue those days later on when you're not on your period after Ramadan has finished because, you know, you're losing a lot of blood. This is no time to be not eating and, and not drinking. It's bad for you. But they will fake that they are still fasting or they will still fast so that nobody guesses they're on their period because they're too embarrassed. Or if they're going to go and buy it from the, the pharmacy, their sanitary towels, they're also embarrassed and they have it in a black bag, for instance, so nobody can see that that's what you've bought. Or they'll send their brother or you know a younger brother to go buy them. So these little things are things that they just take as a belief and they don't question it. So even though there is access to knowledge, you are taking the information from your teachers, from your mothers, from your sister, from your sheikh, from your school. You don't think of going to question if it's wrong or right. So through comedy, when I can show in these sketches that that is actually a funny concept and it's not true by the character that I'm playing saying those beliefs and then us having an expert saying, no, that is, you know, that isn't the correct way. This is the, the actual truth about it. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong about this. There's nothing wrong about that. These were very, very important topics that we had to talk about. So that message reached them in a way that was comedic. So it would be accepted and not rejected. So how is that in the West? Oh, it's very different. We have, you know, education everywhere. It's spoken about in school from a very young age. Uh, it's on TV. It's in every TV program. There's, you know, openness about it. So, you know, we still have deaths and, and, and awful things happen due to lack of knowledge in the Arab world because of this hush-hush culture. Yeah, you'll find it the same in any in any groups that are maybe super religious that don't let you expose yourself to things. So, you know, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, uh, also keep very close-knit that we only mix with people who are like us because others, you know, could influence you to do things that are not good for you or ill-mannered or, you know, all of this. So let's keep together. And let's not access these things that are out there in the bigger world. And you just take what we tell you as, as the thing. That's it. So you'll find the same kind of things happening with close-knit groups like that. And you also do meditation, I believe, right? How, how did that happen? Yes. I feel like I've been very lucky to just come across things in my, my life without really seeking them. They come my way. And because I'm open and curious enough, I go with it. So it started with a yoga teacher who was French that was in Jordan giving classes. Um, so, you know, I learned the stillness and the meditation at the end of yoga and that class. And that was the first taster. But I actually was very scared to meditate by myself and be still with my eyes closed. 
I always felt like there might be something happening or something paranormal or something will, if I'm not conscious and ready with my eyes open, it could be dangerous, which is strange now to think back about how nervous I used to be, how on high alert I used to be. And I do feel that I was more like that when I was living in the Middle East. I think really affected me. I'm also a highly sensitive person, so maybe I didn't describe that in my curiosity and my humor, but I'm, I'm sensitive to things. And so the vibe and the energy can be quite negative and, and quite uh, fearful in countries that are surrounded by problems all the time. So invasion from this country to that country, war with this country, problems with the government, you know, things can change within a minute. I lived in Iran when the revolution happened and we had to get out immediately and we were on the last flight out before the airport shut. I think all of this, in Lebanon, I left literally two months before the prime minister was assassinated killed in an explosion that happened very near the TV studio that I worked. Things changed overnight. It's very hit and, you know, touch and go. You never know when things will completely change. And I think living under that, that the news is always bombarding you with how many killed are in Palestine, how many were exploded in Lebanon, how many were rising prices here or whatever in there is stressful. And so I couldn't get myself to relax with meditation, but that was my first taster to it. And then I was part of a group who started then practicing meditation and doing like group therapy as well. And I tried transcendental meditation and that helped much more. And slowly I managed to get into it. And then in England, I really did a lot to, to do with that and read more about it. And I found it very soothing. And now I can do it for a long, long time. You know, I'm very peaceful doing it. And I think back to how scared I was to just close my eyes before. So it's a real process, I think, to get rid of that tension that's in your body. And the more I'm surrounded with negativity and hearing shocking stories of like honor crimes and, and awful things like that, it, it does affect me a lot to have that on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I'm living a much more calmer, peaceful way really now. And meditation helps a lot. Starting your day with stillness or ending your day with stillness and journaling makes me much more present and less fearful about future or ruminating about the past. You know, living in the present moment has been a real skill to, to develop. I totally understand. It's interesting when, when you mentioned... Um... There was a French yoga teacher in, in Jordan in the studio, no? So I always find that interesting because yoga and meditation per se arose in the East and um, in the Eastern part of the world. And, and now they are being communicated through Western people, the medium, so to say. It's very interesting, actually, the flow of from where what came and where it is going and who is the medium or what is the medium. So there's a complete flow across the world. There's a constant evolution and a revolution which is happening. We live in constant change. If you think about Britain is so famous for that they love a cup of tea. It's all about tea and afternoon tea and their teacups and their tea this and their tea that is very British. But really, tea was from India. But it hasn't kept that the tea is an Indian thing, that they're doing an Indian thing. 
it's become a British thing. And I think you can lose along the way who started what and, it, you know, it doesn't matter in the end. It can develop and become a very <laughs> French thing, yoga, or it can become a very Japanese thing. Yeah, it depends who starts doing it the most, I suppose. Yeah, actually, yes. It's very interesting, the flow from where it came and where it's going and what it has picked up on the way and where it goes back again. So I find that very interesting. When you did your first acting role as Oliver Twist, I believe you were 11 years old, right? Would you have ever known that you're going to, or that uh, the decision of becoming an actress was made somehow then somewhere inside you or what happened? <laughs> no, I, I really wanted to be a singer and I was always singing in the mirror and imagining myself to be a rock star. And so because I liked singing and I was playing guitar and taking lessons and part of a band at a very young age, about nine, because my parents had noticed I liked singing and we had a guitar at home. So that's how that developed. When this musical was being prepared in Jordan for the first time. It was like a big musical with a British director who happened to be living in Jordan because she'd married an Arab who was a pilot actually there. And so my mother thought, well, she likes singing, so I'll take her to this. It's a musical. But that's where I discovered that I'm an actress that really takes it seriously. Like, one, I got the lead role. And two, I would never go on and cry on stage without making myself truly cry and think of something sad backstage and do it for real. So I was a very method actress from 11 without knowing that that was a thing. And so the director could see that, you know, I should carry on and do acting and told my parents, you know, I think you should send her to drama school and this seems to be something she's very good at and takes seriously and stuff. So that's what started it. And funny enough, after now 40 years, she is the director that I've got back in touch with because she lives in England again and we've reconnected and I'm writing my one woman show about my life story with her. She's going to direct it, hopefully. And so 40 years later, now that I'm 50 and I'm ready to sort of talk about this journey and this growth. She's part of it. And I think it's so beautiful that she's going to be the one that I started acting with that I actually complete and do this story with. So that's been a lovely, unexpected turn. That sounds like a full circle. It's like coming home. And she's just retired. <laughs> yes, she's just retired. So she's so like ready to work with me on, on this. And so the timing of it couldn't have been better. Beautiful, actually. No other word for it. What would you like to leave the audience with? Some A message that you would like to leave the audience with? That people are just people. doesn't matter where they're from or how they've grown up and what they believe. We all have similar fears, similar loves, similar passions, similar, you know, we are just human with different languages, with different traditions. That's all it is. And to just be curious and more adventurous to discover more about each other on a deeper level. I think we spend a lot of time talking about surface things and don't allow ourselves to ask deeper questions to each other. And that's how we find out more and connect more with others when we do that. 
And simply looking into, I mean, this is uncomfortable. No one really would do it unless it's an exercise, an acting exercise. But when you just look into each other's eyes, if you did just 30 seconds of staring into somebody else's eyes, you feel a connection that is instant without language, without talking, without discovering, without anything, just through the eyes. It's kind of like you talk soul to soul immediately. And it's brought people to tears doing this exercise in acting and in coaching. And a lot of people find it very difficult as well to even look at themselves in the mirror and stare into their own eyes. So it's something we avoid doing as humans, which doesn't allow us to connect properly. We talk about surface things, the weather, the money, the whatever, not deeper emotional stuff. And that looking into the eyes immediately brings you back to human to human and there's a connection, which is why children just smile and stare and look you straight into the eye and you feel connected to them, you know, when babies are doing that. As humans, we don't even talk to someone looking at them. We look above them or we look to the side or we look to the floor when we're talking most of the time. It's very uncomfortable when someone really does look into your eyes. So yeah, I would say to be braver to do that because the more disconnected we are in the world, more scary it's becoming really. The more able we are to hurt each other because we're not seeing the human that's inside that person in front of us. So it's all about connection, connection, connection. And communication, communication, communication. Yes, and the world is making us disconnected, disconnected, disconnected under the pretense that we're more connected with the internet and Facebook and Instagram. But actually, it's disconnecting us from the people who are actually in front of us and making us think we're connected to people we don't know who we've never met or we might have seen 20 years ago just by looking at their reel for like five seconds and forgetting it. So... We think we're connecting, but what it's doing is disconnecting us. I totally agree. Thank you, dear Rani. And that was such a rich message and a very meaningful one. Thank you for sharing yourself with me and the listeners. I really treasure this. And um, I wish you a lot of love and joy on your journey. Thank you. I wish you the same and everyone listening to the show. It's a lovely show and uh, it's a real pleasure to be on it. Thank you. Dear listeners, that is Rania Kurdi for you, a constantly evolving individual who lives life with humor and curiosity. She struck me as somebody deeply sensitive yet bold, a very interesting blend besides the multiple ethnicities to which she was born and the multiple places she lived in. She straddles the world of media in the East and the West and has learned from the challenges in both. Her journey from disquiet to quiet is as beautiful as her many avatars. I leave you with her parting message. People are just people across the globe, beyond nationality and other labels. So connect, connect, and connect. Thank you for listening to the series Between the East and the West. Do subscribe to the channels mentioned on the site in case, of course, you liked what you heard. I am Meenu Gupta, the host of the series, and I'll be looking forward to your comments. We love feedback. Thank you once again 
நமஸ்தே அண்ட் பாய் பாய்